Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Can I just ask? Shut up, Evan. I'm curious. Could you shut up, Evan? One thing I was thinking about. Shut up, Evan. So there are some rumors out there. Evan, shut up. Is it okay if I just ask? Shut shut up, Evan. Okay, but can I just... I didn't even say anything. Hey, good people. It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up, Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. And we have some breaking news. By the time you are hearing this, it will no longer be breaking, but it's breaking in this moment, and it is breaking me down because it has me feeling... It's like kind of like a... I don't want to say a dream come true, but it's something of a dream realized because when I first heard about... The announcement of and just like that, I, like many, began to think about all of the characters that I would like to see come back. And prime among them was Aiden Shaw. Oh, right. What is the news? Sorry. You know what? It's like you kind of want like the equivalent of like when a breaking story happens on CNN and, you know, they cut away from whatever they were airing and, you know, switch over and breaking. You kind of want something with pop culture news sort of like, you know, in the middle of whatever you're talking about, you want that like breaking news. We we have to put a pin in whatever was going on and pivot because something integral has happened. Okay, that integral thing, exclusive, deadline exclusive, so you know it's legit. Sex and the City fans can rejoice. John Corbett's Aiden Shaw will reunite with former lover Carrie Bradshaw, played by Sarah Jessica Parker, on HBO's And Just Like That. I hear they're using the first person for this. Who wrote this? This is coming from Nellie Andrevia. Nellie hears that Corbett is set for a substantial multi-episode arc on the second season of the Sex and the City follow-up, reprising his role as the... Reprising. Reprising. What do you think? I'm going to say reprising. Reprising his role as the likable furniture maker. I miss you. And I've missed you. And it's not just because you look so good, and you do, and you should know that. But I lie in bed at night, and I think about us, and I think about you holding me, and... You broke my heart! We did get an appearance. Actually, we got several appearances from Aiden after his arc on the show ended. So he pops up briefly in season six, and it delivers a memorable moment on the show when they sort of, Carrie and Aiden, promise that they're going to get back together, and then Carrie does that voiceover as they're walking away and says, you know, there are those people in life who you bump into and you say, let's get a cup of coffee with no intention of ever doing so. I think that is like a deeply relatable moment for so many people, not just when it comes into run-ins with former lovers. I just think there are countless people who your way out of a run-in is, you know, promising that like, oh, 
let's part two this when it's like, no, 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 part one was a part enough. So we all love that moment. And it's revealed that Aiden has a baby and you kind of also get in that moment this idea that like, oh, when not just on this show, but when a character or really a human goes away and you don't see them for a long time, their life continues on, right? They're not just like waiting in the wings for you. They're living their lives and their circumstances can change. And so I like the idea that like Aiden didn't just pop back up and become available in the same way he did uh, when he returned to the show in season four, where it was just kind of like, oh, Aiden. Yeah, what about Aiden? But then we did Sex and the City to the movie, which is non-canon, as I think a lot of people know. And for many of us, we wish it didn't happen. Um, But he does pop up in that movie and Carrie and him kiss. And at that point, Carrie's married to Big. And it's kind of a thing, but it, it peters out very quickly. And Big's angry, but forgives her. There's no real consequences. I'd love to live in a world in which a married Carrie can go and kiss Aiden and have that be fine. I'd like to live into I'd like to live in a world in which Big is like, oh, I always thought Aiden was kind of cute. Why don't you bring him home? Why can't we play with him together? I think that would have been interesting. We won't be getting that on and just like that on account of Big being dead. But I am really curious to see what will happen with Aiden. Um I'm hoping uh, I was gonna say I'm hoping they don't reprise their relationship, but like I kind of love them together. I do. Um, I think John Corbett is not only a phenomenal actor. I think the character of Aiden is so compelling and so never been done before and never been done since. And I think that John Corbett, like Cynthia Nixon, brings out some of Sarah Jessica Parker's best work. So I am just very eager to see them back together. And I get the sense that people really liked working with John Corbett on the show. So I think he'll be a good presence on that set, we can hope. Now, if I were dreamscaping, I would love to see a plot line in which Aiden is bisexual, comes back into the fold, sees that Steve is newly single, and something happens there. I think that would be a fun twist. And you could say that's crazy, but you could also say it was crazy that Miranda would be getting finger banged in Carrie's kitchen by a non-binary comedian, you know? So like things change, circumstances change, as we said. Now, also I'm wondering, is Aiden married? Uh, Are we going to see, married still rather, are we going to see Aiden's kids? Is there a world in which so wait, Aiden had the baby in season six. So wouldn't Aiden's kids be like Brady, Brady's age at this point in the timeline? So could that be a thing? I'm so curious. I'm so excited. This also tells us that the writer's room is trucking along on season two. I can't wait to begin to get set photos again as we got in season one. And I'm just so relieved that Amidst this brouhaha over at HBO slash HBO Max slash Discovery Plus, I'm so glad that whatever that Michigas was, it it is not going to hamper our viewing experience of And Just Like That Season 2 or Hacks Season 3, mind you. So I am grateful. I also wanted to touch down on another big news story from the week, which was that Lee Pace, six foot five actor Lee Pace, was profiled in GQ Hype. 
um, it's a wonderful spread. I think he's incapable of non-wonderful spreads. And in the accompanying interview, he names for the first time his husband, Matthew Foley. He has this very charming and sweet quote about Matthew. He says, What I'll say about being married, it was once described to me as an endless sleepover with your weirdest friend. In our experience, that is absolutely true. If you found one person you can be weird around, hold on tight. Then he was asked if he'd like to have kids in the future, and he said, I'd love to have kids. I think there's nothing better than little kids running around. I don't totally agree, but I want that for him if that's what he wants. But I just wanted to... I don't know if clear the air is what's necessary here, but I got a lot of people tagging me in these posts, sending me this info with the assumption that A, my lust for Lee Pace is real. It's not that it's not real, but there's... (laughs) It's it's uh, amplified rather uh, because of the hyperbole of the, the the hyperbolic chain rather that is social media, as well as the fact that Matthew Foley is a good friend of mine. That's the gag. I mean, it's funny. I I also I know Lee a bit, um, but Matthew is a legitimate friend of mine who I hang out with. So. Not only did I know that they were married, I've known they were married from the time they got married, which was actually some time ago, but also I'm so happy for them because I love Matthew very much and I don't know Lee personally well enough to love him. I mean, I obviously love the celebrity version of Lee, but the human being who I've met before, I like him a lot too, and I'm very happy that they're married. I am going to retire the honorific of six foot five actor. Because I think it apexed this week, I started to see the discourse online souring on it, which I've sensed for some time. Look, I don't want to say that I invented this, you know, calling him six foot five actorly pace. I will say I've been using it for years, plural. Um, but no doubt you could show me the receipt of someone that their usage predates mine. But it is something that I was doing for a while. And This is the funny thing that I've been thinking about with regards to like, not, I was going to say continuity, but not so much continuity, more repetition, which is that in order like for a certain joke to land, I I think that there's a certain point at which like you keep using something and it gets funnier because of its ubiquity. A great example of that is like the Dakota Johnson um, response to Ellen, which like there was a point at which it's like people would use that still of Dakota Johnson or say things like, you know, ask everybody or no, that's not the truth. um, And it would be funny. But then there's a point at which a joke is made so many times that it becomes laborious. It's, it, it loses its funniness because it's too ubiquitous and right. And I think there's something about humor increasingly. So on spaces like the internet, where you want that sort of if you know, you know, quality to it. Like it's funnier if you can feel like you're part of the people that get a certain thing. I also think about like the Meryl Streep scream that I was obsessed with, where there was a while where like someone would say something completely out of pocket or asinine or or just, you know, batshit. And I would post that and follow it up with the Meryl Streep scream because it expressed both the emotional response to that thing, but it also was funny. Or rather, you might be thinking, eh, it wasn't that funny, Evan. I thought it was funny for a period of time. But then that turned, right? I was like, mm, 
I, I think I've used it enough. And I think with the six foot five Lee Pace thing, it's like it apexed, you know? And I, I don't know when, I mean, this moment felt a little clear because I did see people, like, the joke then became, I noticed on gay Twitter specifically, like people coming for the usage of the six foot five thing. Um, someone used uh, a clip of the teacher from Clueless um, pushing aside that one girl giving her book report, telling her to shut the fuck up. Uh, shut up when you think about fuck it. Up. As an example of like, you know, another person identifying this man's height as an honorific to who he is. We don't need it. It's done. It's played. And I want to say, I hear you. There are going to be the set of people that are going to say, I think, I shouldn't be so... Uh, so sure of this, but that are going to say, oh, we missed it because like that's part of, that's like the thing that you always did and I'm not going to be doing it anymore. You could also be saying, here you are going on for several minutes now about an honorific, but I am fascinated at sort of the machinations of a joke on the internet and I think a lot of the sauce is in the sort of um, keeping it small and when something gets too large, it becomes less fun. I mean, I honestly felt this way in many senses about Timothy Chalamet, when it's like, I remember when I first became really obsessed with him, it felt more niche to like him. Maybe it wasn't that niche, but like, now he's Timothy Chalamet, and and it's sort of, what is there to say? You know what I mean? It's like, or even like with his style. Like, I remember when there was like, it was the Heider Ackerman, it was 2017 Con Film Festival, I want to say. That silver suit, oh my God, that, that people loved. And it was such a moment where it's like, I don't know if I could care about a Timothy fashion moment quite the same anymore. I think about Billy Porter and that Christian Siriano um, suit slash gown that he wore um, to the Oscars. I don't know if like, Sometimes I'm like, I don't know if these moments are meant to have a long game. Not these people or their careers, but the zeitgeistiness of them, you know? I think about sometimes, like, people that have become famous because of a meme or because of a thing that they did on the internet one time, and that expectation of, like, oh, they've broken through now. But it's like, you wonder sometimes, like, is there long game for everyone? Or do sometimes, do are things meant to be a moment and then go away. I just want to retire the phrase. I know it's like, God, you're still going on about this? Yes, I am. Um, but I will not be going on about usage of the the six foot five honorific. That said, I feel like Lee's in a press cycle right now, so that's why you're gonna get a lot of images of him. He's promoting bodies, bodies, bodies. I believe he will be sort of pulling back uh, now that this film is out and kind of going and spending time with Matthew and at their home and working on his next projects. And so I think we'll be, there will be less reasons to be writing about him, which I think will, will, uh, will be good because I don't want him to become ubiquitous to the point where there's a backlash to him. Not him, but like his presence on the internet. I saw someone online call him like the internet's boyfriend. And I was like, oh God, like, no. That's, I, I don't want that for him. Um, there's nothing wrong with being the internet's boyfriend, but when you're the internet's boyfriend, when you're everyone's boyfriend, I think that the weight of that expectation, you're forced to buckle. So listen, he's not the internet's boyfriend. He's Matthew Foley's husband, and we respect that. Before I go to our interview, I did want to recognize um, a loss of life uh, that happened this week. Um there's no easy way to talk about this. My boss, um, I accepted a new job 
recently at the Freeform Network, um, working on their social media team, I was brought over um, by a woman named Kimberly Eaton, who tragically passed away last week. Um, We still don't know a ton of the circumstances surrounding her death, and I'm not sure it's my business or our business at all. You know, you kind of, you take your cues from the person's family when it comes to this, but she was incredible. And it's strange, I didn't know her very well. I had just started at this job, but in my brief time there thus far, it became evident what a pillar she was at the company. And, you know, I'm looking right now on my phone at her at her Twitter and um, under the, the, the description, uh, you know, who she is, it says, underdog enthusiast. And again, didn't know her terribly well, but that was so evident in the short time that I got to spend with her. And then, thankfully, so many tributes have been pouring in online in celebration of her. Freeform um, wrote about her in a post uh, and said that Kimberly once described herself as a six foot, three inch, bisexual, big, beautiful woman and a charming troublemaker. And I think that's, that says it so beautifully. Charming, troublemaker, and then underdog enthusiast. I think that Kimberly is someone who will absolutely not be forgotten it shakes you, uh, of course, when death happens, but you know, also unexpected death. When someone who is who is taken too soon, someone who clearly had so much left to give, and someone who spent so much of their life, their time here on this earth, giving to others. Um, someone said this in one of their social media tributes, but they said like it, it's not a a. Um, It's not hyperbole to say that Kimberly likely would have, you know, one day been in office or or done something that seismically changed the world. She just had that presence about her. Um, I'll miss her laugh. There's a video that someone posted um, of her and it's her doing karaoke and she starts to laugh at the end. And just hearing that laugh, it made me both so sad. Um but also very happy um, because it was evident in that video how much joy she possessed and how much joy she gave to others. And um, it's just so, so shocking. It really, really is. Um, And so I just wanted to take a moment to celebrate the life of Kimberly Eaton. If you get a chance, um, you can go on Freeform social media and learn a little bit more about her. And I also would want to advise people to check out the actor Scott Evans, his Instagram. It's Scott Evans Graham. He posted a video tribute. It's a three-minute video uh, from a woman talking about Kimberly's life. A longtime advocate for LGBTQ plus people with her activism, fundraising, mentorship, and being part of our community, Kimberly Eaton has always been in a position to share her unique voice with hundreds of thousands of people in West Hollywood and around the world. Her impact will most surely be felt and it will incentivize us at Freeform um, to uplift marginalized voices with this channel and... uh, I just want to send my heartfelt condolences to Kimberly's friends and family, and I wanted to take a moment to honor her. 
So with that said, I want to turn things over to today's guest. As you all know, this is an And Just Like That podcast at times, and it is a White Lotus podcast at other times. And today is one of those days. We've had on the show Molly Shannon, Jennifer Coolidge... So we've had so this is our third White Lotus cast member. We've had Brittany O'Grady call in. We have Sydney Sweeney calling into this week's episode. So that's five. Oh, we've had Lucas Gage call in. Six. Okay. We're getting there. Connie Britton, if you're listening, this is an open invite. Steve's on. Uh, Mike White, hello. Anyway, I'm really excited. I've been wanting to chat with Murray for some time now. He has an Emmy nomination for The White Lotus, uh, for his role as Armand on this show. And he's had quite an incredible career. And more than anything, he is one of a select set of longtime openly gay actors who has played many gay roles throughout his career. And I don't know, I feel like I hear a lot, and maybe you do too, about actors uh, feeling like they either needed to be closeted for a part of their career or feeling a need to play straight to show range to show that like they that that their queerness was not going to be a hindrance to their success and i think murray shows that uh it most certainly will not be and not only that but like uh a queer person can play queer roles and there's a breadth of queer roles queerness is not you know not the entirety of a character. So anyway, I'm really uh, glad to be in conversation with him, charmed by him and his beautiful Australian accent. And, you know, he's a beautiful man, so that didn't that didn't hurt at all. So without any further ado, my interview with Murray Bartlett. Shut up, Evan! He is an actor whose stage, film, and theater credits are both lengthy and varied, Known for his role as Dom on HBO's Looking and Mouse on Netflix's Tales of the City. He has appeared on Sex and the City, White Collar, Damages, The Good Wife, Nashville, and Madam Secretary, amongst many others, and in the feature films Girl Most Likely and The Stand-In. But he is perhaps best known for his Emmy-nominated turn on HBO's The White Lotus, playing Armand, the hotel manager of the titular White Lotus Hotel. In addition to his Emmy nomination, which is still pending, he has won the Critics' Choice Television Award for Best Supporting Actor for the role. He most recently appeared as Vinnie Green in season two of the acclaimed Apple TV Plus series Physical, and has roles in the upcoming Hulu series Welcome to Chippendales and the highly anticipated HBO series The Last of Us. You know him, you love him, now get to know him a little bit better, the charming, effervescent, and impeccably dashing Murray Bartlett. Murray, I am so excited to have you here today, uh, finally on the podcast. I believe you are the third White Lotus cast member to grace this pod, hopefully third of many. Like I said, and I've said before, it's like Pokemon for me. I hope to eventually capture them all. I was thinking about the last time we saw each other, and then it hit me. It was actually at a house party in Los Angeles um, earlier this year, uh, and you were being aggressively hit on by... Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was a thing. And then before that, the last time we had run into each other was at the 15th anniversary concert of Spring Awakening. And I believe that was your first time seeing Spring Awakening, right? Yeah. Jonathan Groff is one of my, you know, soul buddies. And I um, just love him so much. And I've 
always been hearing about the legend of Spring Awakening, but I never saw it when it was first on. And so I, you know, there was a lot of anticipation for me. And as you know, that that night of the 15th anniversary was so epic and emotionally charged and the whole, I mean, it felt like we were in, we were all part of one organism, right? Like it was just electric, but I felt completely emotionally like cracked open. It was a really beautiful kind of significant moment, wasn't it? As you said, Spring Awakening is uh, just an important musical in the canon of musical theater. But in addition to that, how rare to see an entire original cast of something reunite 15 years later, do it all over again, one night only. It was both looking back at something, but also being in it in the present so uniquely. Anyway, I wanted to start off with that because I feel like, as you said, it was just a very emotional night and, and we got to both witness it together. Um, speaking of emotions, we are recording this less than 24 hours after the death of pioneering singer and actress Olivia Newton-John. I have to believe as a fellow Aussie, a homosexual, and just as a human being, you were a fan of hers. You rarely post to Instagram story, but you did several times last night, which leads me further to believe that she was someone who impacted your life. Um, What did Olivia Newton-John mean to you? Well, I just have to pick up on this like short phrase that you said a couple of times in that like, um, uh, in what you just said, I have to believe we are magic. <laughs> I have to <laughs> believe we are magic, which I've been listening to um, on repeat for the last 24 hours. <sighs> Olivia Newton-John is iconic, I think in general, and especially for Australians. You know, she was pure joy, you know, in a time that can feel a bit overwhelming and sort of... Um, where we're seeing a lot of the darker sides of human nature. <laughs> um, she is this kind of shining light, which it's sort of, it, it, it feels extra sad to lose someone like that when, you know, we, we sort of need those kind of bright lights, I feel like. There's an effortlessness about her singing voice that it's easy to, you know, when you look at the bombast of some of the other great singers, you might not immediately think of Olivia in in comparison, but I think it just comes down to obviously Hopelessly Devoted to You, one of her most famous songs. When you get to that chorus and there's no way to hide... In that moment, I think it can become very clear just that that effortlessness of Olivia because it seems like it would just be so easy because she does it so easily, but that cannot be replicated. And I think that there's just a singularity about her. Her presence will absolutely be missed. There's a kind of Dolly Parton-esque purity in her voice when Dolly sings super kind of simple. That's just this like unfiltered honesty and, and, and purity that's just so beautiful. Um, so yeah, anyway, love Olivia. Love Olivia. May she rest in peace. So we could get to the White Lotus later in the conversation because I do want to talk about your early life and your early career, but I, I would be remiss not to just get to it right away. And as I was, you know, formulating some of my questions around the White Lotus, I kept thinking, you know, I wanted to ask you about the poop in, in the, in the suitcase. And then part of me was just like, my God. How many times can he be asked about this? You um, go number two into someone's luggage. I do, yeah. <laughs> and it is totally deserved, by the way. 
are you sick of talking about it? That specific scene. <laughs> no, I mean, it is probably the most asked, most asked question, um, uh, both in interviews and by people who I come across who have seen White Lotus, <laughs> people are like, was that you? Um, which is such an odd question. Like we're, you know, we're actors doing in this world of make believe, why would it be me? But you know, I mean, it's like, you know, people thought it was very real. So, um, but no, you know, I, that was an amazing experience working on White Lotus and I'm really proud of what we all did and, um, and feel so, fortunate to have been in that whole experience so I you know that's the great thing about having a wonderful experience on a show then when people want to ask you questions about it you know you're you're coming from that place of like oh this is something I'm proud of and really happy to be part of so I don't mind you know asking questions I I and I also feel like it's testament to Mike White and you know and what we all did at, at his sort of uh you know with him as our kind of captain of like hitting those moments that really made an impression you know he's just a master of writing those sort of scenes and characters that like and mo moments that hit in a really sort of intense way he doesn't hold back it you know it speaks to the fact that all of these characters are just like shitting on each other with their behavior you know and so it kind of that act in that scene highlights that and i think it really drives the point home in a way that people are are getting either you know subconsciously or consciously so <laughs> You mentioned the great Mike White. I mean, Mike White has played uh, a pivotal role in this podcast, you know, because I've interviewed so many people that have worked with him, but then also on my other podcast, uh, which is a Survivor-themed podcast, Mike also plays a big role because of his participation in Survivor. Prior to The White Lotus, how familiar were you with Mike White's oeuvre? I am and was a huge fan of Enlightened um, and sort of mystified as to why Enlightened didn't kind of make the impact that White Lotus seems to have had. Um, and yes, I'd seen a couple of other of his, things, of his things, but I hadn't seen Chuck and Buck and I hadn't watched Survivor. I'm not like plugged into to reality TV in a huge way. So I, I haven't followed a lot of those shows, um, but I, I was a massive fan um, from Enlightened um, and yeah so I and you know as soon as I knew I was uh, working on White Lotus I you know went back and binged all of his stuff except for the reality TV stuff I didn't get into yet. Well I do really hope at some point you get around to his Survivor season because in addition to the fact that it's one of the most incredible seasons of Survivor amongst the 42 seasons that exist. Right. Mike is someone who by design should not have lasted long in the game. Um, but due to Mike's finesse uh, as a human being and his ability to connect with people, um, he's able to stay in the game for a long time. And I think what speaks to a lot of the what makes Mike White Mike White is that he doesn't just sort of have the love of Hollywood types. He has the love of survivor players who are just everyday human beings that want to go on an adventure. And I feel like there's something about Mike White where he can calibrate himself to whoever he's around. There's no hierarchy in his mind of being better than just because he comes from a world that's, you know, often surrounded by the wealthy and powerful. That's not 
mean that's not the 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 secret of life to mike the secret of life it seems is adventure and wanting to connect and have experiences so i hope you will find it your way to it at some point now i read that you did a self-tape audition after reading the first script for the white lotus and i believe you were on the plane over to hawaii when you finished reading the subsequent scripts and discovered not only the arc of, of your character, but the arc of the overall season. And you're reading this. Like, what, what was that moment like on the plane? Do you, do you recall that? I do. I mean, it was a sort of an extended release because I was reading through those, all those scripts and being like, oh, wow. Uh, oh, wow. Oh, fuck. <laughs> 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 um, but in a good way. But it was, you know... You know, you sort of have a sense of what you're walking into, walking into Mike White's world. And so I was exhilarated by that already before reading those scripts. The only thing that I recall very strongly is like, oh, wow, this is an amazing role. And I felt those sort of butterflies of like, wow, I really don't want to mess this up. You know, like I didn't have a sense of the sort of epic nature of the roller coaster ride that, that my character Armand goes on. And so I felt equal parts like, you know, massive excitement and like, oh, wow. I just, I, 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 yeah, I want to do a great job on this, I, you know, and, and so I, and I think that that's a really good feeling to have, like, I think, because it makes you want to reach for something, um, yeah, for to reach for something, you know, reach a little higher, spoiler alert, I guess, or maybe a softened spoiler alert. I didn't realise who died in the end until I got to that scene, weirdly. I mean, I, I feel like there's there are, uh, you know, a bunch of people who are in that same camp, but particularly reading it, um, so that was a show. I mean, there was a lot of great surprises, but I, yeah, I felt, I felt super excited and, you know, mildly terrified in a way that I think is good for an actor at the beginning of a project. <laughs> Did you have any familiarity with the world of hospitality going into this? Because at first glance, perhaps Armand might seem like a very out there character, but I think in the world of hospitality, there are many Armands. He's, I, I don't want to call him common, but I don't want to call him uncommon. Yeah. I worked in hospitality. I, you know, I, so I, I have my own experiences. I think that there is a, a, a thing that you relate to as an actor. Well, there is definitely a thing that you relate to as an actor when you come across other actors who are in hospitality or in an, some other position that's not exactly what they want to be doing, you know, they want to be performing or whatever, and whether they are at different times, but they, you know, they, they, it's their, you know, their support job or whatever, their money job. And in the, the original uh, scripts of White Lotus, um, it, it didn't make it into the final cut, but um, there's a scene where Armand says that he wanted to be an actor. And so I immediately keyed into that of like, oh, this is a guy who is in a position that is like a showman position. So he's kind of living his dream, sort of his broken dream um, through this role of the, the, um, the, the hotel manager. Uh, so it was, it was very easy to identify those moments in my life where I felt like this, you know, like bursting with wanting to be an actor or, you know, like to show, to, to be able to have an opportunity to vent my creativity and 
um, and not being able to do it or not, or, you know, having to do something else where it, that feels stifled. And so that was a real key into him for me. Before we get into more, let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsor. The hot days of summer mean only one thing. I need a can of something and not just any something, a can of can. Can is the queer-founded, cannabis-infused social tonic that is the summer beverage I cannot be without. Each can is made from five ingredients, fresh juice, herbs, agave nectar, cannabis extract, and water. The fresh juice is no BS either, with sourced ingredients like Sicilian lemons, Fijian ginger, and Massachusetts cranberries. Yum. My favorite flavor, you ask? Well, I'm currently a pineapple jalapeno kind of gal, but a cloudy apple rhubarb light always manages to hit the spot too. And look, it may not be the season of giving, but that doesn't mean you can't receive. Shut Up Evan listeners can receive 50% off their first order of can. Yes, that's 50% off. Go to drinkcan.com and use promo code ERK50. That's drinkcan.com, D-R-I-N-K-C-A-N-N.com, and use promo code ERK50 for 50% off. Let summer go to your head by sipping on some cans. And we're back. So you got to work with many greats on this project. I need not tell you. Um, Among them, uh, your fellow Emmy nominee, the great Jennifer Coolidge, who I've had the privilege of having on this podcast twice now. I'm wondering if you have any memories from meeting with, working with, or interacting with Coolidge, because it's my understanding that uniquely this cast spent a lot of time together due to COVID. So do you have any Coolidge memories that you could uh, share? I mean, yeah, I, I have. I didn't have a ton of scenes with her, um, which is possibly a good thing because I just want to watch her when she's performing. <laughs> so it's, just, it's sort of, there's moments where you're like, okay, I got to come back in the moment. You know, at the end of most days, uh, those of us who were available, we go down to the beach at sunset, watch the sunset and all swim together. And this one day we were, you know, we had this little sort of beach part that was over some rocks that we would go and sit in and um, we were all sitting around and making like weird jewellery out of like leaves and plants and stuff. Um, And so we were, you know, doing that and sitting in our weird jewellery Uh, our plant jewelry and Jennifer sort of launched this story about this experience that she'd had quite recently. It, an hour later, we were sitting there just like enthralled and like having been through, you know, like you laugh, you cry. It's like, and you're just completely, we were just completely mesmerized by her and this incredible story. She's just like an extraordinary storyteller. And then at the end, I was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. I was like, I'm sorry about this. And that was like, that's wonderful. And then afterwards, I'm like, I know it was based in truth, but I'm not sure how much of it was just her joy in storytelling. And it doesn't matter. I don't, I don't care. She's just a, an extraordinary, wonderful being to be around. And I will always remember that sort of hour, hour and a quarter of just being in her kind of thrall as she just, you know, it was like, you know, it was weird that we were in this like plant jewelry. It sort of felt like we were, you know, cave people around a fire and it was story time. And she was, you know, she was our, our uh, shaman <laughs> kind of thing. So awesome. Well, speaking of fellow Emmy nominated White Lotus co-stars, I wanted to bring in Sydney Sweeney, who has a question for you. Hey, Murray, it's Sydney. I have been put on a dare 
to ask you, how did Lucas's ass look that close up? Oh my god. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I am a little advanced in age and my short sightedness is kicking in. So to to be honest, it felt like a beautiful blur. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of Lucas Gage's ass, I wanted to bring in fellow White Lotus co-star Lucas Gage. Hi Marie, it's Lucas. First of all, you are the most generous and talented actor I've ever worked with. Second of all, nobody deserves this nomination and hopefully win more than you. I have a double question for you. First is, what are the top three butts of anyone, any person you've ever seen? And I better be included in that list. Second, if you could shit in anybody's suitcase, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Also, what would you eat before? <laughs> of course, those are Lucas's questions. I know. Um, <laughs> okay, the three top buds. Well, I have to say that one of them is Lucas's. Even though it was a blur, it was it was the most magnificent blur. Um, and I haven't been, you know, um, I was going to say I haven't been that close to that many butts, but maybe that's not the right thing to say. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever seen... Uh, Idris Elba's uh, naked butt, but you know he's like a, a butt for the for the for the books. Um, and I mean, I know this is kind of cheesy, but I you just sort of can't go past JLo's butt. You know what I'm saying? It's a butt that 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 deserves some mention. Okay, and shitting in someone's suitcase, dead or alive? I would have to say Donald Trump. I feel like. I feel like I could, I don't, I don't think I would ever follow through and shitting in someone's suitcase, but that's just what comes to mind. Um, and I'd have like, whatever is the most expensive kind of lobster dinner at Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> <laughs> so you were naked in the White Lotus. You were naked on Tales of the City. You were naked on Looking. You were naked in the film August. And I'm just wondering, what is your relationship like to nude scenes? I mean, this is sort of a kind of cliche thing to say, I guess, but it's true. But, but two T's, it's true. If there feels like a, a good reason for the scene in the context of, of the show, I feel completely comfortable with it. Um, because I think nudity can be like, excuse, excuse the pun, a powerful tool, you know, like it, it it's a, uh, it can really, you know, make a an impression or make a statement in a, when when used, you know, in a, in a good way um, that I think is very effective. Um, but I am very wary of nude scenes that feel gratuitous or you know don't seem to have a reason um, because, you know, some of the most beautiful intimate scenes that I've ever seen um, on film and TV, uh, you don't see anything. I don't mind being naked, but like when you're in front of, you know, a hundred sort of semi strangers and you're taking your clothes off, there's, you know, there's, there's a sort of a surreal nature to that. But, but if you're, um, <laughs> that butt keeps sneaking in. Um, <laughs> uh, but if you're, you know, I also like 
love working with other actors and always make sure that we have like a very open conversation about what we're comfortable with. So if all those things are in place, I, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I feel, I feel super comfortable. And I've, you know, as you mentioned, I've done it a bunch of times now, so it's not, I don't have like, you know, beginners jitters with that stuff. <laughs> you know, Emma Thompson recently did a nude scene in her new movie and it got a lot of attention. Uh, I think, it, I believe it's one of her first nude scenes, but also because she's an actress of a certain age. You're an actor over 50 and I feel like increasingly audiences, I can only speak on behalf of audiences, not directors, want more and more of you nude. I'm wondering what it's like, you know, we talk a lot about female actresses and nude scenes and feeling like at a certain age, they're either less inclined or less asked to get nude. You are someone, it seems the older you get, the more people want you naked. Or rather, maybe it's just, maybe it just sustains where it's like, they've always wanted you naked. I can't speak to that scientifically, but I'm wondering like, what is it like for you, the older you get to kind of continue to see these nude scenes popping up. I feel like that might be exciting or as you say, you know, liberating or might like, is there a certain time in which you say, am I going to keep getting naked? And I'm not saying this with the hope that you will stop. <laughs> you know, I think that there is an opportunity in intimate scenes to show real connection and, or a real struggle with, you know, connection or wanting to connect um and added to that you know getting to a certain age where we're not conditioned to sort of think that that's hot or you know we you know we tend to um are programmed to think that youth is beautiful and and um older bodies are not it's always good to be able to to look for little opportunities to push boundaries a bit or open people's minds a little bit and i don't know that this you know would do that but you know it's certainly a factor when when something that you're not used to seeing on screen um appears let's rewind a little bit you came of age in the 80s and i'm wondering how would you describe your formative years what was uh your youth like i was a teenager in the 80s and like kind of living my dream really I had a great like group of friends we had fantastic drama teachers at this high school. I felt very, very free. And Perth is, you know, it's a small city. It's a beach city. So it was like, it was a gorgeous place to grow up. And then I moved to Sydney and went to acting school. And although I'm super thankful that it, for that experience, I, I found it really tough. So I kind of lost confidence there. So it was really interesting. Like I was this like, free-spirited meditating kind of hippie kid who were just like loved to perform and I felt very free in it and then you know moved across the country and went to this fantastic acting school with a lot of great teachers and a, you know great group of um it was a great group of actors in my year um but just you know lost confidence and 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 you know in hindsight that was a great thing for me, I think, because I had to rediscover myself and build that confidence up over a number of years. And it was, you know, I'm a, I'm a very privileged white kid who like had a very, I had an amazing mother, have an amazing mother who like just showered me with love and made me feel like I could do anything. So to have something that for me felt difficult was probably great. It made me ask big questions about myself and have to kind of 
struggle with my self-esteem and stuff um, for a while and for quite a long while, actually. And during that period, what was your access like to gay culture, particularly in your teen years? Um, you know, it was a very different time. We talk about this a lot on this podcast and and at large, which is like the velocity of the LGBTQ plus liberation movement has been very fast over the last 20 years, 20 plus years. And I'm just wondering when you were coming of age, what did the landscape of queerness look like both in the media, but even where you were in your everyday life? First of all, going back to my extraordinary mother who asked me when I was 14, if I thought I might be gay. And I said, yes. And she was like, yeah, I thought so. Um, and she had gay friends. She just un loved me unconditionally. However, I came of age during the beginnings of the AIDS crisis and Australia's response to the AIDS crisis was extraordinary, extraordinarily good, you know, in terms of, um, amazing organizations forming rallying getting information out we had incredible people in government at the time who were like fully behind getting information out and creating uh just a culture of uh understanding and knowledge and and you know be, you're just being fully informed on what was going on however it was also it was devastating so it was it was a although i had a lot of freedom personally because of my mom and I had some great gay role models around me. It was also a scary time where a lot of people that we knew were getting sick and or dying. And um, it was an extraordinary period in hindsight to have gone through to like, to be around from the beginnings of it. I was, you know, very pretty young when it was beginning, but then to see that all happen and then also come through the other side and, and witness people who we knew who were sick, get new medications and live and who are still living. And so, you know, it was, I, you know, I, I at 16 was sneaking into gay bars with, you know, my friends and, you know, doing all the regular things, I guess, that, that a lot of gay kids do. So there was this sexual liberation going on and then the AIDS movement comes about and, you know, it's easy to talk about it retro retrospectively, right? Because we know the trajectory of AIDS, but at the time that was not known. And there were a lot of fears for particularly gay men around having sex, which, you know, in turn around dating and just even, you know, establishing uh, the boundaries of what gay men could be, how, how they could act with one another. Could they touch one another? How this disease was passed? I'm wondering how that affected your time dating um, and figuring things out when we didn't yet know what AIDS was. You know, by the time I was becoming a young adult, um, kind of in the, I guess in the late 80s, Australia was on it. We were given great information about what was safe and what wasn't safe in Australia. So I felt, you know, well armed to just kind of yeah, be, I don't know, just live my life. People of my generation, it's a very interesting thing to come into a new era where um, unsafe sex is a thing again. It's very difficult to shake. <laughs> the things that were drummed into us. Cause it was just like, you were, it was just like, especially, well, I don't know, I guess everywhere, but like in Australia, it was just like, you have to be safe, you know? And that's like, you have to protect each other. And like, so I, it's just, it's so strong in me that like, 
very i don't know that i will ever let that go fully so it's it's fascinating you know seeing what's happening now in terms of a, a lot more freedom it is such an interesting conversation though because you know i feel like often what gets erased in in you know gay history is this period post-AIDS, pre-PrEP. We had Harvey Firestein on the podcast earlier this season, um, and obviously a predominant voice in the, the gay liberation movement. And it's just interesting hearing these vast perspectives because it's not so much like... Um, the older generation and the younger generation, there's a lot of nuance in the in-between era when we sort of were, you know, again, coming off of the AIDS crisis, but not yet where we're at today. And again, this speaks to what I was saying earlier, the velocity of this movement and not just sexual liberation, just queer liberation in general. It, it's happened quickly. Speaking of queerness, you told GQ in 2021, as a younger actor, I thought about being out or not, but I just never felt like lying about myself was an option. And we hear stories from way back in the day and even still today about actors either feeling like they couldn't be out or being told by managers, agents, casting directors, whatnot, that being out will cost them their careers. And it seems like it seems like that was not your experience. And also just in looking at your your resume, you've been so comfortable playing queer roles. And I do want to say to your credit, none of them feel the same. You have been able to show through your work what I think is a fear of some gay performers, which is that by playing gay, they will be boxed in. I feel like what you've shown is that gay is but a singular character trait in a whole, you know, arsenal of, of traits that a character can possess. I'm wondering if you were ever told that, you know, your queerness and being out about it was going to cost you your career. I don't recall anyone outright saying that. I remember having conversations about it. Um, not in the context where someone was saying you should not be out, but there weren't a lot of role models of out gay, queer, LGBTQ actors, um, getting a wide range of roles you know there just wasn't that was just not a not a thing really um, unless they were closeted so um i do remember having those conversations and i do remember feeling some sadness about the fact that i might be restricted in the roles that i was allowed to you know offered and i you know i can't say that i was like i wanted to be an activist but i definitely carried carried and carry with me a great admiration for those sort of trailblazers, not just queer, queer trailblazers, but any kind of civil rights um, trailblazers who are just like, I'm, this is who I am and this is what I'm doing and that's it. So there was an element of that as well that played into it, but it was more for me like, I can't, live a lie. Let's take a quick break before we continue and hear from today's sponsor. Can we talk about Sunday Riley? Not only is it the name of not one, but two of my favorite Buffy the Vampire Slayer characters, it also just so happens to be one of my favorite skincare brands. Sunday Riley uses advanced, clinically proven ingredients blended with balancing botanicals for non-irritating, fast-acting formulas. Just because the end of times might be near doesn't mean you can't have great skin. Some of my current obsessions include their global best-selling Good Genes All-in-One Lactic Acid Treatment, CEO 15% Vitamin C Brightening Serum, and their Autocorrect Brightening and Depuffing Eye Contour Cream. As a person with notoriously puffy eyes, the last one is a really saving grace. 
If you want to visibly improve the look and feel of your skin, look no further than Sunday Riley. Sunday Riley is available at Sephora and Sephora.com. And we're back. So I believe you moved to New York City in the year 2000. Do I have my timeline correct? Yeah. I'm curious about your perspective, having come in, experienced a bit of the pre-9-11 New York City, been here during 9-11, and then subsequently experienced that that post-9-11 world. What was it like for you before, during, after? How did 9-11 affect your experience of moving to New York? I fell in love with New York and I came on a sort of a tourist visa um, and um, to do classes and kind of get inspired and stuff. At the end of that, like 10 or 11 months, um, it was, I, I booked uh, a job, uh, one episode of Sex on the City, which was surreal, this show that I was obsessed with. But, um, and suddenly it felt like a real New York story. So I, we shot that and then finished that in August or just around August. And then I went home to Australia and I remember, I don't know, like 10 o'clock at night or something, we were already in bed and the phone rang and one of my best friends was like, it's World War Three. turn on the television, ah! like, and I remember turning on the TV and seeing the towers come down and just, I just, I, because I'd been so immersed and in love with New York for that like 10 months, it, it, it felt so surreal and so, you know, like for everyone, devastating and heartbreaking. And I immediately tried to reach out to my friends and I couldn't reach them. And it was, uh, yeah, it was catastrophic, obviously. I decided to come back when the my Sex and City episode was airing and I was nervous and excited to come back because, you know, New York was rallying and like, you know, pulling together um, as only New York can um, in, in, so many beautiful ways so i you know i remember that i remember coming back to that and feeling like this incredible sense of community in new york um which was beautiful and i also remember seeing american flags everywhere on people's cars on subway cars and and i found that unnerving <laughs> to be honest because it felt very nationalistic in a way that i don't relate to it felt kind of scary so it was this interesting sort of dichotomy, I guess, of this beautiful, like, coming together community, everyone looking out for each other, and also this scary, like, ah, you know, like, fierce nationalism, which I personally find scary. So you brought up uh, the Sex and the City episode, season four, episode 14, All That Glitters. It's famously the first episode in which Carrie puts her engagement ring on her necklace, you play a gay shoe salesman named Oliver, who Carrie meets and befriends. Thank you. Oliver Spencer. Hello. I've only been in the state six months, and I've come to regard your column as my New York survival guy. Oh, Oliver, you're a dead man. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Oh. What do you do? I'm a shoe distributor. It would be cruel to kid me. All the top lines. Offices here, Sydney, and Milan. So, then you get a discount? for special friends and columnists. Your character famously gives Carrie a copy of Jocks and Cox 4, not to be confused with Jocks and Cox 1, 2, or 3, and perhaps Jocks and Cox 5, who's to say if we didn't get another in the series. Thank you for making that distinction, yes. Yeah. 
The friendship ends, or rather never really takes off, because Oliver is too consumed with jocks and cocks at the club and does not pay enough attention to our beloved Carrie, who returns home to Aiden and realizes some of the things she thought she was frustrated by him about are inconsequential in the end, and she realizes that she wants to continue their relationship. Bum, bum, bum. I'm wondering what it was like filming that gay club scene. I know famously Andy Cohen, I believe, pops up in that gay club. And so I have, yeah, you didn't know that? I didn't know that. Yes, he has a cameo. But I'm curious, it's my understanding that that gay club was a real gay club and was populated by gay men. What was shooting that that gay club scene like? And again, this is the year 2000. So I just have to imagine it was exciting to be on a set full of sweaty gay men. (laughs) It was. The whole experience of shooting that episode of Sex and the City was so surreal for me. And I was really nervous um, because, because it was so surreal and because I loved that show. And like suddenly after, you know, being this kid from Australia, I was like living in New York and like then having lived in New York for like 10 months or whatever was suddenly like on the set with like Sarah Jessica Parker. So I was, I was really nervous and it was all I could do to contain my nerves. And not to say that there wasn't joy in doing it. Like I was thrilled, but I was, I was pretty nervous. So I was like just working on containing that (laughs) during that job. Um, But it was like, it was very fun to, to be in that environment. It's, It's weird. I've become one of these people who lived in New York for 17 years, I might say, um, who are, who like now have become nostalgic for the early days of when I was in New York. And I remember meeting people when I first moved to New York who were doing the same thing for like their time in New York, you know, 17 years before. Um, but it did, does feel like a really special time um, in New York. And to be part of, part of a show that was like a megaphone for that was so thrilling to me. Are you watching and just like that? Well, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't finished it yet because I've come off a very like intense year of work. Well, I will say, I mean, you have a lot going on, but it is worth noting that Stanford was very famously jealous of your character Oliver in feeling like Carrie had subbed one gay Stanford out for your character Oliver. And now that Stanford is sadly no longer a part of the end just like that universe, I would love to say that maybe perhaps Oliver, you know, reappears at some point. Maybe he's still in the shoe business. Maybe he shows up with the copy of Jocks and Cox 5. I mean, again, just dreamscaping here, but I could see it. Now, <laughs> speaking of upcoming projects, uh, you have two upcoming projects I want to touch down on briefly before I let you go. The first is Welcome to Chippendales, in which you play Nick DeNoia, who was the Chippendales choreographer, famously. Uh, And I'm just wondering, did it feel different for you stepping onto that set in a post-White Lotus world in which you are buzzy, Murray? Like, people are talking about you before this Emmy nomination even surfaced. It was felt by many. I I hope you felt it, too, that, like, this was a performance that was going to be remembered. And I'm wondering if you felt that stepping onto a new sense, a different sense of yourself as an actor, and and I'm wondering if it felt different at all. Things certainly shift it's been a wonderful learning curve um and just you know fantastic to have choices and this was one of you know welcome to Chippendales was one of those things of being brought on kind of early on you know asked if I was interested to join early on and you know being in a role that like is one of the pillars of the show so exciting and like such a great character and I feel like 
you know, I've tended before White Lotus to get um, offered roles that are in a sort of certain stable. And after White Lotus, um, I guess people have seen me in a different way. And so that that my the kind of stable of characters that I'm considered for is 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 bigger now. And doing a, having the opportunity to play a character like Armand in White Lotus that you like you have to push through fear in some ways of being like, I'm just going to let go into this. And, you know, what better way to do it at the, you know, at the hands of someone like Mike White, like he's such an extraordinary creative person and director and, you know, wrote the thing and, and um, created the thing. So it was, you know, it was a, a very playful sort of safe space to do that. So I feel like an expansiveness in myself, I guess. I'm like, oh, what else can I do? You know, like, and I, I've always felt like, oh, I can play these expansive characters. I want to play these expansive characters. And now I'm getting opportunities to do that. And this is one of them. And it was just pure joy, really. You know, like just it, Welcome to Chippendales is an amazing story. I don't know if you know the kind of backstory to Chippendales, but I did not. And it's fascinating, right? I mean, it's just like, true crime on crack kind of thing but also like mixed in with the Chippendales man I mean you know like this this fun kind of you know campy world late 70s into late 80s I mean there's so many ingredients in that show that are so fun to sort of play with and in on the subject of Welcome to Chippendales, I wanted to bring into the conversation one of your co-stars from that upcoming project the Academy Award nominated Juliette Lewis Hello, my th most favorite co-star, um, who I revere and adore. It is Juliette Lewis. I have a question for you. Um, growing up, who was one of your um, mentors or an influence that just stuck with you forever? Um, I would love to know that. Also, how about a role? <laughs> I get asked this question, it's funny, but I wanna know from you, what kind of personality or role is kind of dreamy that you would like to happen, make happen? Yeah, what does Murray Bartlett want to do in the future? Some fabulous other amazing roles that um, would go with the already amazing roles you've done. I love you, miss you. First of all, I, you know, love and revere Juliet so much. I think the first influence that I remember anyway was I I must have been five or six. I think I was very young and I was watching TV and Rudolf Nureyev, the 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 Russian ballet dancer, came on television dancing with such like deep emotion and expression and I was mesmerized and my mom was with me and I just, I'm not sure whether I said this or, but, but I remember feeling like, oh, wow, I want to do what that guy is doing. Um, what, who do I want to play or what do I want to play? I mean, I, there is a character that I want to play who was deep into the music scene um, and uh, wrote a magazine um that became very successful about the music scene and then later in life became an environmental activist um, and met an untimely end because of that. And I want to play him. <laughs> what is his name? Well, I just don't want to quite put that out into the world because I like, I, I, 
I'm, I want to, I want to pursue it, but I, but it's uh, an extraordinary character. Um, and this is, I guess this is what, you know, these are the characters that I feel excited by. And this character that particularly that I'm thinking of a real life character is one of those characters that is an extraordinary person who like is creative and um, just has a very kind of rich life. And, and part of that rich life is being an activist for a cause that is, is very dear to them and very important to us as a human race. And so I feel like, you know, this is a character that has has put something really important out into the world um, and and telling their story also feels like it's putting something important out into the world. So, you know, that's that's a little heady and maybe a little sort of actor wanky, but that's the, the, those are the characters that I feel really excited by. Listen, I appreciate that far more than I do the common answer more and more today, which is that, like, I'd love to do a Marvel movie. <laughs> Um, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, your life is different, right? Like, you know, you're experiencing life in a way that happens when you have these periods of success. And I, I can't help but see a parallel between you and Coolidge right now, right? Like Coolidge is having this same sort of moment also brought about by Mike White. I'm wondering how you think this moment would have played out had it happened to you at 21 versus 51. I feel like I have a different kind of access to myself as an actor at this point in my life because of all the experiences that I've had and and because I have a different, you know, a, a mature, let's say, um, perspective on the industry and about the ebb and flow of work. And it's allowing me to fully love the moment that I'm in, in a way that I'm not, you know, obviously I would love it to continue forever. And like, you know, uh, but it, but it's, but I'm aware that, sometimes that doesn't happen or it comes and goes or whatever. And I also have made some choices in my life as I've gotten older to support my own happiness in life, you know, um, including, but not exclusive to my career. <laughs> so I, you know, um, in fact, sort of more leaning towards what makes me happy? What do I want to create in my life? And because I have some of those things in place, in my mind and my perspective, but also like physically where I've made my home, the, the sort of chosen family that I've, I've found and, and um, all of that um, is allowing me to just love what's happening. <laughs> and I don't know that I could have done that when I was 21. I, I feel like I was immature and I was still figuring a lot of stuff out. I've also been, you know, I feel like relationships, like intimate relationships have been my biggest teacher for probably the first few uh, decades of my adulthood. And that's taken a lot of my energy. Um, and I, I don't have any regrets about that. I'd, I've learned a lot and loved the relationships that I've had. Um, but I'm in a period now where I'm a little bit like, okay, I've learned some of those lessons. I'm kind of like, happy in that area of my life and I feel like I've come to a point where I want to focus on some other aspects of my life and like what do I want to put out in the world and like so I don't know whether that just coincided with having some really fantastic opportunities or whether it was the thing that kind of helped ignite those opportunities that like 
perhaps Mike White was seeing some of that in my audition or something. He was like, oh, this guy's ready to do something. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? So then you have The Last of Us, which is based on a wildly popular video game. It's said to be one of the most expensive television series ever made. It's 10 episode season shot over a year over a year of production, the game is regarded for being a rarity again. The game is regarded for being a rarity amongst M for Mature games in telling a nuanced story featuring fully realized characters, particularly that of a teenage girl that isn't a damsel in distress. It's also notable for having a few queer moments. I'm wondering. I know you could probably say very little. Is there anything you can tell us about this project? And I just have to underline, when I say wildly anticipated, when I told friends that I was having you on today, they were like, you cannot not ask him about The Last of Us. <laughs> yeah, so it has a very, very devoted following. And it's been it's been fascinating um, being part of the show and, and sort of peripherally witnessing that. One of the things that, you know, I was so excited about working on that project is a number of the key figures in that um, show created Chernobyl, which is one of my all-time favorite pieces of TV. I think it's phenomenal. The stuff that I got to work on is just, you know, some of the most beautiful writing, like nuanced and touching and human and just really, um, like really blew me away. So I, you know, I can't say anything about what I do or anything else really well i'll tell you that uh, a cursory search of reddit uh will indicate the fact that the fans of the game feel very satiated by what they have seen thus far from the television series i was also told even mentioning your character to you could be something of a spoiler so i yes i will i will tread lightly but i i i am very excited to see what this uh story uh will be uh when it premieres before I let you go, I just want to ask you quickly, you know, I'm always fascinated by celebrities like Nicole Kidman and Renee Zellweger who choose to live in places outside of Hollywood or New York City. And you have now made Provincetown, Massachusetts, your home. And I'm excited. By the time this episode airs, I believe I will be in P-Town for the very first time. And I'm just wondering, what is it about P-Town that makes it a place that you choose to call home? It's magical here. JFK created this enormous strip of National Park, National Seashore. So there is just gorgeous nature here left to run wild. And it's, it's, it's a naturally just extraordinarily beautiful place. Um, amazing woods. And I'm, I'm kind of a nature boy at heart, which it seems odd in some ways that I ended up living in New York City for, for so many years. But I feel like that was like, a great so it really kicked me up the butt and like and I love New York but there came a time where I was like okay I'm a nature boy where can I where is a place that I feel like I want to make my home it's also like a place in the country surrounded by beautiful nature that also happens to have a town that is very open-minded where I can you know walk down the the main street holding the hand of my partner and feel like and you know, it's, I feel nothing about it. It's, it, it's a hot spot in the summer, which brings in some energy. It's a beautiful, calm, peaceful place in the off season with a lovely, much smaller community. But don't move here because <laughs> I want to say that one. 
<laughs> yeah, the, the secret's out. No, but also to your point about walking down the street holding your hand, I think, yes, we one can do that many places, but I imagine in a place like P-Town, you can be holding your partner or friend or whomever's hand and look down the street and see other people. And, you know, just, I think, to be surrounded by queerness. Yes, we can bring queerness anywhere we want, but to go to a place where queerness is so intrinsic, I think there's a magic to a place like that. But I look forward to experiencing. You know, weirdly, I'd never thought, oh, I just want to be in the gayest place on earth as my, you know, my place that I make my home. But, uh, but here I am. Here you are. <laughs> but don't move there. Don't move there, anyone. This is not a place. Visit <laughs> yeah, during the exactly. summer. Uh, I want to thank you so very much. I want to congratulate you uh, on The White Lotus, on your Emmy nomination, on the subsequent, and we didn't even get into physical. I mean, you've had quite a year. Uh, and I just want to say, you know, we talked briefly for a moment, like, is this a moment, right? That like, you know, Mike found found you in this role and discovered and blah, blah, blah. blah. I, this is not a moment, Murray. I believe that for fans of yours that predate White Lotus, like myself, we've long been fans of yours. And I think if anything, it's just, there's a momentum growing right now. But I, I think that uh, this this career that you've developed over time, um, I don't think this is a moment. I think this is a long game and you've been at it for a long time. And I think you're seeing uh, the myriad successes because of the hard work that you've put in. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for saying all that. I really appreciate it. And I, you know, I hope you're right. And I hope we get to have many more conversations. I love what you do and what you put out in the world. So it's like a joy talking to you. Thank you. All right. Have a good rest of your day. Talk to you soon. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan is produced by me. Evan Ross Katz, with audio editing by Sophia Asmuth and social media by Griffin Dunn. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers for their financial support. And thank you to you all, the listeners, for helping us keep the lights on. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.